More than 14,000 people in Gaza, and probably many, many more than that, have been murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces in the recent weeks. Yesterday, there was an announcement of an agreement between Israel and Hamas for a temporary pause in the fighting. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Yara Shafani. Yara is a member of the Palestinian Youth Movement and a PhD student in political science at York University. And we're also speaking with Mohammed Nabulsi, an organizer also with the Palestinian Youth Movement and an attorney based in Houston. Welcome to the show, Yara and Mohammed. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Mohammed, let's get started. Big dramatic news in the last 24 hours. People have seen on their TV screens, on their computers, if they read the media, this relentless bombing of Gaza, this genocidal attack against Gaza, you know, 10,000, then 15,000, maybe 20,000. We don't know because so many people are still trapped in the rubble. But there's this announcement that there is at least a temporary pause in the fighting for a prisoner exchange. I want to get your take. What's the deal? How significant is it? What does it show in terms of the progress of the war? And of course, most people in the world want to know, is this going to lead to a a permanent or an enduring ceasefire? Right. So the agreement is basically what has been described as a four-day humanitarian truce. It entails the suspension of all Israeli military action and ground operations throughout the Gaza Strip the suspension of Israeli airstrikes and air traffic in the southern part of Gaza, and the suspension of air traffic in northern Gaza for six hours a day, basically from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. their time. And specifically, the suspension of air traffic in northern Gaza is meant to facilitate an end to surveillance during that period and theoretically allowing Hamas to identify the location of prisoners, Israeli prisoners that are held by other factions or groups. Additionally, this four-day truce entails the unrestricted entry of trucks carrying humanitarian aid and fuel into the entirety of Gaza without any exceptions, a guarantee of the freedom of movement between the north and the south along the Salah al-Din Road, and the release of 50 Israeli prisoners consisting of 38 teenagers under the age of 19 and 12 women in exchange at a ratio of three to one, a release of 150 Palestinian women and children held under administrative detention. And so this agreement is as a a result of a number of different things. First and foremost is the inability of the Israeli military to achieve its stated military objectives. First, they described their goals during this period, this 45 days, as destroying the Hamas leadership and its military capabilities, including its rocket capacity. Those things have not occurred. There's not been a single assassination of any top-tier leadership amongst the Hamas resistance wing, amongst its military wing. It also includes the forced 
or like compelled capture of Israeli prisoners. That also has not taken place whatsoever. And so this is the result of basically the resistance capabilities and capacity to actually repel the Israeli military objectives. The second reason is there's pressure throughout the globe, including popular pressure, but also on the state level, on the Biden administration, on the actual Israeli state and internal to Israeli society of this considerable pressure around the release of the Israeli prisoners, which has not taken place at the hands of the actual military. Now, whether or not this results in a permanent ceasefire is still to be seen. There's been an extended agreement as well that at a ratio of three to one, that for every 10 prisoners released, there's an additional 30 Palestinian prisoners that will be released and an additional day of ceasefire. And that's why, for example, there was a release of 300 names, a list provided by the Israelis of those who they're willing to agree to release, both to allow for Israeli public opinion. You know, they have this system where the Israelis are allowed to comment on who is released and on what terms they're released, and also an opportunity for the resistance to identify whether or not they will be releasing additional Israeli prisoners. Yara, we've heard a lot, at least if you're living in the United States, where I am, you learn a lot in the U.S. media about the plight of Israeli hostages. Nobody in the United States, if they're getting their news from the mainstream media, knows anything about Palestinian prisoners. So this idea that Palestinian children and Palestinian women are going to be released in an exchange in a way is a new piece of information, again, for those who are just getting their news from the corporate-owned mainstream media. Let's talk about the political prisoners in Israel, the Palestinian prisoners, how many there are, how many are children, why are they in jail? Again, everything in the U.S. mainstream media is about the Israeli hostages. There's been literally nothing that I've seen in the mainstream media up until now about the plight of Palestinian prisoners. Right. And that is a central part of the the problem here, really, is that what we are looking at in the context of Palestinian political prisoners at the beginning of October was over 6,000 Palestinians being held hostage in Israeli prisons. Over a thousand of these prisoners are under an Israeli policy called administrative detention, which actually means that they don't know why they're in prison. Their lawyers don't know why they're in prison. Their family does not know why why they are in prison. There are children being held in Israeli prisons. And there are also Palestinian prisoners who are extremely sick, who have cancer, who are having medical care being neglected. And so really the plight of Palestinian prisoners is really central here. And what's important to note is that the way in which the Israeli state has historically used prisons to repress Palestinian life, to repress the Palestinian fight for freedom. And so there are many Palestinian political leaders who are also in prison, people who have very popular support amongst Palestinian society who have been held in prison for decades. And so really, Palestinians who are in prison face extreme hardships. And I think something that's important to note here is that this could have been addressed from the very first day. Palestinian factions have been calling for the release of political prisoners for as long as we can remember. And from the very first, from really from October 7th and 8th, there was, you know, an immediate kind of pointing to the plight of the Palestinian political prisoners. And of course, Israel chose instead to wage a, you know, over 40 day long genocide against the Palestinian people. And during that 40 day period, over 40 day period, 
the number of Palestinians being held hostage by Israel in prisons actually nearly doubled. We saw the rounding up of thousands of Palestinian prisoners in the West Bank. We saw Palestinians being held hostage who are laborers that go into Israel to work who were detained by the Israeli occupation forces and police. And so we actually saw the Palestinian prisoner population nearly double in the last, you know, just over a month. And so I think what's really important here is when we're looking at this agreement, like Mohammed said, we're, what we're looking at here is a pause. The language of pause is being used. Ultimately, there are, you know, over 10,000 Palestinians still in Israeli prisons. Palestinian people are still under occupation. Gaza is still under a blockade you know, where Israel effectively controls what enters Gaza and what exits, controls Gaza's air, land and sea, which is going to make any kind of entrance of humanitarian aid, rebuilding materials. We're talking about a tiny strip of land that's been effectively destroyed over the last 40 plus days. And so Gaza is still under a blockade. And ultimately, the Palestinian people are still facing extreme hardship inside Gaza. And Israel has effectively entered the northern part of Gaza. And so we really have to, I think, emphasize the importance here that this pause does not mean an end to the occupation of Palestine and that there is still a long struggle to be waged ahead. Mohammed, this agreement, according to Yara, could have happened weeks ago. It could have happened weeks ago. The Palestinian side was willing to make such an exchange many weeks ago. The Israelis, with the support of the Biden administration, rejected that. So what changed? Their defeat on the military battlefield. That's what's changed. I don't think in that moment, in the beginning period, uh, Israeli society or it's the political elites or even its colonial backers would have accepted the defeat was coming. And so they had to obviously try. They had to restore what they view as uh, Israelis' capacity to deter other forces in the region to attack Israel. And that required the implementation of their Dahi doctrine, which was uh, established in 2006. Dahi, for, for the viewers who don't know, is a neighborhood in southern Beirut. It's a stronghold for the Lebanese resistance, specifically Hezbollah. And during the 2006 war, in response to Hezbollah's abduction of Israeli soldiers on the border, in order to exchange them for the hundreds and thousands of prisoners held, Lebanese prisoners at that time held by the Israeli state. And in response to that operation, the Israelis destroyed the uh, neighborhood of Dahia. They essentially leveled the civilian infrastructure. They targeted civilians deliberately and explicitly. And so that doctrine is a doctrine that's carried forward and throughout the 2008 war, 2012, 2014, 2021 wars on Gaza. And basically what we've seen over the last 45 days is the implementation, the destruction of civilian infrastructure and life in the Gaza Strip in order to reestablish Israel's image in the region. And despite that, despite its stated goals, its military objectives of recapturing its prisoners, despite its stated goal of destroying the Palestinian resistance military capabilities and leadership, it's failed. And so now they were forced uh, with their tail between their legs to come to the table in order to accept a deal that, like Yara said, was actually on the table from day one. And this represents a major defeat for them, but obviously it's not one that they were able to spin immediately if they had agreed to it. And so they required them to spend 45 days to satisfy the bloodlust of the Israeli society, but also uh, in order to save face in, the, in front of the entire world 
based on the failures they experienced on actually on October 7th. So Yara, they had to kill a lot of civilians to to satisfy public opinion in Israel before the Israeli authorities acknowledged that their stated objective of the destruction of Hamas was unrealizable, although they don't explicitly say that. But, you know, that's an interesting concept. When I was when I was a teenager, uh, the Vietnam War was going on. And every day, every day we picked up the morning newspaper, m- me and my, my entire family. And I think this was true about most families in the United States at that time. And there were big headlines about what the body count was in Vietnam. I mean, for people nowadays, it might seem impossible to think this way. But each day we, we opened the newspaper and it was like, 120 Viet Cong killed. The next day, 1,000 Viet Cong killed. The next day, you know, a certain number of Viet Cong killed. It was called the body count. And it was a way of the American government telling the American people who are becoming more and more sort of questioning about the war, don't worry, we're winning. And the reason we can prove to you that we're winning is that we're killing all these people. And so every fatality, every death was a Viet Cong death, meaning the fighter of the National Liberation Front. We know from Operation Rolling Thunder records later that between 1965 and 1968, the United States bombed villages in both North and South Vietnam to the extent that the Pentagon's own estimates were that they were killing 1,000 civilians at least each week for 106 weeks. That's 156,000 civilians, but it couldn't win. It couldn't win the war. It seems very similar to me in terms of the, the psychology of imperialism, the psychology of empire, where in order to prove to your own population that you can win, you just have to kill a lot of people. And in this case, it seems like for the U.S. and Vietnam, not actually true. Yeah, I think one of the things that is clear is that there was an attempt by the United States political leadership, but also by Western leadership more broadly and, you know, their various media conglomerates to do this exact thing of basically tie all of the deaths the Palestinians killed to kind of this question of the Palestinian leadership in Gaza of Hamas. And so we saw this in the language that was being used, right? where it was referred to regularly as an Israel-Hamas war. When Palestinian deaths were reported, many media outlets were calling it the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. We saw the U.S. political class, anytime they were speaking about this, there was this hyperfixation on Hamas, on the need to for Israel to defend itself from Hamas is the language they were using. But then you had more vicious statements like what we saw from Nikki Haley and Lindsey Graham and others, really kind of this language around flattening Gaza, punishing Gaza, and really kind of trying to tie the population of the Gaza Strip with Hamas. And I think what we saw with the mass movement that emerged in this moment was really a complication of that, because we know that the United States really needed, in order to justify and to build you know, popular support for Israel's genocide, needed to win the support of the American public and the American people and was using their media apparatus in order to try to do so. But what we saw in terms of the mass movement that emerged all across the Western world and, of course, in the global south really complicated that narrative where people were essentially refusing to accept 
this kind of positioning, refusing to accept that this increasing death toll was some sort of victory, and rather we're seeing this increasing death toll as an indicator of really Israel and U.S.-led imperialism's violence and barbarism in the region. And I think that also is part of the loss, right? The, I think, major failure that we've seen incurred by both the Israeli state and the Western world in this moment. On the one hand, you know, as Mohammed mentioned, we have the military loss, which is that no military objectives, stated military objectives were met. But also the fact that what we saw in this moment was a kind of clear unification of segments of the Arab world against Israel's genocide, right? We saw, you know, intensification of the war between Israel and Lebanon or Hezbollah specifically on Israel's north border. We saw Yemen, Yemen's Ansarullah movement, really mobilize in support of Palestine. And so we're seeing, we saw very clearly kind of this regional unification. Obviously, it has limitations. We know that with Gulf countries and other more reactionary and U.S.-aligned powers in the region. But nonetheless, we saw a very clear sort of regional unification, which also represents a military loss. We saw the military loss that took place in Gaza. But most importantly, I think, or equally as importantly, I should say, is we saw the major loss of the narrative war inside the United States, inside the Western world, where mass movements were able to exert pressure and to reject this very kind of attempt to position the rising death toll as some kind of victory in a fight against Hamas. And instead, the masses of the Western world and the world more broadly said, actually, this rising death toll is a clear indicator of Israel's fascism and U.S. imperialism's violence in the region. Mohammed, that's so important when we're trying to look at this in its sort of multi-layered complexity, the, the conflict, even the recent conflict, but the longer conflict between Israel and the Palestinian people and its neighbors. The issue that Yara's talking about, which is that public opinion actually matters. And it doesn't matter if it's entirely passive, if it's on the sidelines, or it's been completely captured by the dominant narrative formers in society. You know, Karl Marx, of course, said the ideas of any society are the ideas of its ruling class, but of course, not completely, because at a certain point, people start to rise up, people start to organize, the discontent becomes organized, people learn that the problem isn't this or that problem, but the system itself. In other words, consciousness or people who become conscious they matter now. Maybe they didn't matter so much in the 16th century, but certainly in the 21st century, public opinion does matter. And you have, in a way, a war that has multiple fronts. One front is in Gaza or in the West Bank. And then another front, which is the front of global public opinion. And I think Yara is completely right, and you can see it. It's, you know, it's observable we were we all of us were part of helping shape it but public opinion has shifted in such a dramatic way and even now the biden administration internally whatever internal crises it's having it's partly due to the tremendous shift in public opinion where people are saying now oh i would never vote for joe biden no matter what and they're chanting genocide joe and demonstrations have been taking place almost daily in the thousands, hundreds, and smaller places 
November 4th, we had hundreds of thousands in the largest demonstration ever in support of Palestine. And it is global. And it's definitely not only shaped American politics or, or limited the available options for American politicians, but regionally, as Yara was also mentioning, and as you were talking about, what's going on in the Middle East, in the Arab world, that has also dramatically shifted since October 7th. I mean, if we think about what was happening the days or weeks before October 7th, it looked like the most reactionary Arab regimes were about to normalize their relations with Israel. Of course, Egypt already had a, a strategic partnership with Israel since 1979 with the signing of the Camp David Accords. Anyway, the whole world has shifted and changed, and public opinion matters. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think we have to place the current events within, obviously, the broader geopolitical context, the emergence of a multipolar world, the defeat for U.S. imperialism in Ukraine, uh, its emphasis and focus or pivot, so to speak, towards Asia and focusing on its backing of Taiwan in relationship to China. All of these things are the conditions for which the U.S. or by which the U.S. wages its war on the Palestinian people through its proxy in Israel. And so that's the backdrop. And global public opinion is important for the U.S., not just simply because of its aspirations and or, or its sort of objectives vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian people or the region, but it's important for its objectives around the globe. And it needs these states, these global South actors to line up in backing in full support. They failed in terms of lining up global South support for their war in Ukraine. And they're failing now in lining up global South support, state actor support for their war in Palestine. And the region specifically hasn't seen protests like these since 2011, since the early period of the uprisings, the so-called Arab Spring, and specifically in states like Egypt and Jordan, where the populations have gone out into the streets in the millions for the first time in, in years. That's a threat to the actual existing dictatorships that are backed and relied on by the U.S. government, especially its aspirations in the region. We've seen even the Saudi government and Gulf states waver, despite the fact that ultimately they know that their interests align with imperialism. So whether they waver or not is really going to be dependent on how strong their populations are. Extremely repressed, surveilled, all with the full backing of the U.S. population. So we're not even able to really fully register their support for Palestine because of the repression they face. And all that is the backdrop. Add to it the mobilizations we've seen in the streets of the U.S., Canada, the West more broadly, that we haven't seen since the Iraq war. And what we've seen is two things. First, the, the movements in the U.S., in the West, are much sharper politically than they have been in, in decades. They really have contextualized what's happened in Palestine within the broader context of imperialism, 75-year ethnic cleansing campaign waged against the Palestinian people. These movements have, their consciousness has only further developed. We've seen the enlistment of a variety of different sectors and generations into this struggle. And I think what's most important and something that we're only now fully starting to comprehend 
is the shift, the generational shift that we're witnessing. And it's not just on Palestine. The generational shift is on every social and political issue facing the people of the world, whether it's climate change, whether it's social issues, whether it's healthcare, education, uh, imperialism. These shifts are, I think, what's most terrifying the ruling elites of these countries because they've captured institutions now. They have full control of the vehicles of power currently. But this younger generation that's increasingly disillusioned and really has nothing to lose, they don't have any prospects for sustained employment, they don't have any prospects for home ownership, they see a a future where environmental degradation is shaping their everyday reality. All of these things, these younger generations are connecting dots more so than they have in the last multiple decades since the fall of the Soviet Union, since the heydays of the 60s and the 70s. And so I think this is what's most terrifying terrifying to the ruling elite. They've realized that they're not able to maintain hegemony around public opinion and public understanding of the world around them, especially younger generations. And so PYM, Palestinian Youth Movement, as a youth formation, as a a group that is focused on younger generations, specifically in their mobilization and their enfranchisement, has seen this not just amongst Palestinian, Arab, and Muslim youth, but amongst youth more broadly. And Palestine becomes not just a banner for Palestinians or a banner related to land from the river to the sea, but a banner for every social and political issue facing our generations. And fortunately for us, we have a legacy of older generations that have struggled and maintained these lines throughout the worst periods of global left history. And we're able to build on their legacy and to rebuild foundations that were previously destroyed by U.S. repression and by various other developments, including the fall of the Soviet Union. And I believe we're in a more revolutionary position than we've been in in a very long time. And that's due to decades of work to bring us to this point. Super interesting. Yara, when you think about the recent era and what Mohammed is talking about, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the advantage or the change in the relationship of forces to the benefit of imperialism, to the benefit of the empire, that seemed to be sort of the new era, the era of unipolar dominance, and it gave the United States, and I think the Israeli regime, a sense of hubris that, you know, they were going to rule the roost forever. So we've gone through this era of counter-revolution in a way that's impacted progressive left movements, anti-imperialist movements everywhere, including, of course, in the Middle East. And you know, now that there is, as Mohammed is saying, this kind of new upsurge, and it's not just an upsurge in everyday street activism, which is obvious. It's a shift in thinking, a shift in consciousness, and it's multi-issue. And it's not even about issues per se. It's about an assessment of where the world is and how the systems, the systems of power work. We've entered this new era or we're entering a new era. Maybe it's not fully entered or maybe we've got one foot in it, but it's different. When you think back to what the era was prior to this, say in 1967, when the Israelis regime seized the West Bank and seized Gaza and seized the Golan Heights and invaded Egypt, the U.S. at that time was bogged down in the losing war in Vietnam that I had referred to earlier. There was this era of revolution that was kind of sweeping the globe. The U.S. was overextended. It was bogged down in Southeast Asia. And I think the Israeli regime proved itself to U.S. imperialism that it could be 
an effective extension of American power in this resource-rich region that was at that time aflame with revolutionary anti-imperialism. That's when the PLO was born. That's when Marxist, socialist, pan-Arab parties were forming and, and there was this general shift to the left. And so the U.S. thought, oh, Israel is doing and must do that which we can't fully do because we're bogged down. Here we are now like 60 years later, or certainly 50 years later, the world is changing back again. And it starts to appear or could start to appear that fixing or affixing U.S. imperialism to the Zionist regime, which has become increasingly openly racist and unable to achieve its military objectives, that at some point it actually becomes isolating for U.S. imperialism, isolating for the empire rather than simply an asset. In other words, it's kind of a, the pendulum was one place, it swung back another place. And even though it's not fully back into where it was in the revolutionary phase of the 60s or late 60s or 70s, all of this has to be taken into account when we think about movement building. Go ahead. I mean, I think that when we're looking at this moment, what we need to you know, understand, and I think Brian, both you and Muhammad made this point, is that we're in an era like really of um, resurgence of global South revolutions, but also mass movements, right? And so what we're seeing here are revolutions against imperialism all across the African continent, consolidation of progressive movements across Latin America, and then of course the context of the Middle East, where there's been, you know, on the one hand, continued repression of movements fighting imperialism through the backing of repressive nations that are aligned with the United States, but also attempts to wage war on any nation that, you know, dare not comply, right? And so I think there's been this kind of, we're in a moment really where we have to look at Palestine as a central part of the global revolutionary struggle. It is really a central piece to the fight against UN-led imperialism. And through kind of thinking of it that way, that also can help us understand a little bit why the United States' you know, support for Israel, which you mentioned, Brian, has really been so critical and so strong and really not wavered, even amidst the genocide that we've seen unfold over the last month and a half. And so, you know, Israel really, I think, is best understood as a military outpost for the United States. I was reading a report recently that noted that between 1943 and 2023, the United States has, within those years, given Israel over $160 billion in aid, not including U.S. military packages, and that's not reflective of inflation. And so we're really seeing kind of a military outpost in the heart of the Middle East that the United States has been effectively funding and backing in order to advance its interests in the region. And so when Palestinians are engaged in a struggle against Zionist colonialism, against the genocide that the Israeli state unfolds against them on a day-to-day basis, the United States sees that as a threat to U.S.-led imperialism in the region and also U.S. hegemony across the world, right? And that's why we've seen kind of the response that we have from U.S. officials in the last 45 days where there's been a complete co-signing of Israel's genocide, right? I mentioned earlier Nikki Haley, I mean, her exact words on Fox News in a message televised on American TV to Netanyahu was finish them, 
in reference to Gaza. Lindsey Graham called for Israel to level the place was the language that he used. And we saw Blinken and Biden go to Israel in the middle of a genocide, right? Which is really like the most clear kind of backing that you can possibly give is to take a trip while Israel is bombing Gaza and really kind of very clearly make it known that you are in full support of this genocide, the refusal to call for a ceasefire. We've seen you know, many U.S. officials on TV kind of reject any kinds of calls for a ceasefire. And so really like what we've seen is a full kind of lining up of different Western leaders behind the Zionist state of Israel. And we've also seen what happens when Western leaders even remotely deviate, right? So we saw this with Macron, but also in Canada with Justin Trudeau, making even the slightest suggestion to say Israel should exercise restraint, you know, when it comes to civilian deaths in Gaza, to which Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, responded, you know, basically an outrage that the Canadian government was even suggesting Israel was not exercising restraint. And so you have kind of even the most marginal attempts by Western leaders in this moment to say things that are just slightly out of line are being immediately kind of walked back. And really amidst this is a building mass movement, like you've both mentioned, in Canada and in the United States and in other parts of the world that is exerting additional pressure on these imperialist nations. And I think that what we're going to see is really like when we say that this is a watershed moment, we don't only mean this is a watershed moment in the sense that the Palestinian national liberation struggle is seeing and enjoying mass support from all corners of the world. What we also mean is that this represents potentially a critical turning point where the working class of the United States, of Canada, of the Western world is seeing in full force its government with its mask off. Its government is backing and supporting a genocide. It is ignoring the popular will of the people who, you know, in the United States, over 66% said they supported a ceasefire. In Canada, that number was over 71%. And these governments were still refusing to utter the word ceasefire. And so the masses of these countries are seeing their leadership, their political classes and their media be engaged in what can only be understood by the masses as a form of corruption, but also an exposure that the structure of liberal democracy does not necessarily reflect the will of the people and is not a system of true democratic structure. And so I think what we're seeing here is a watershed moment, not only in the sense that Palestine and the movement for Palestine is gaining significant traction, but it is a watershed moment in the sense that the masses of these countries of the United States and Canada and of the world are seeing the contradictions that exist in their society and are now being faced with a choice that can drive them towards a more revolutionary period. Mohammed, I, I agree with Yara on that point. And all of the factors that she mentioned that are contributing to that. So it's not only the primacy of the Palestinian struggle at the moment and the centrality of the Palestinian struggle in the resurgence of a global progressive anti-imperialist movement, which I think is undoubtedly true. It's merging with people who are like identifying the problem, not simply as Netanyahu or this or that politician, but looking at it from a systemic point of view or having a, a system kind of assessment. We sort of have entered a period where people are basically challenging everything and linking the issues together. 
And then there's the other factor of Joe Biden, a Democrat, is the president. I'm talking at least for inside the U.S. Joe Biden is the president. He's not a Republican. He's not Donald Trump. He's not George W. Bush. He's a Democrat. And he's the one. He's the one who is embracing Netanyahu, personally embracing and personally attaching his administration to this campaign of genocide. And I mentioned and alluded historically to the Vietnam era. You know, in 1968, young people were out chanting, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? They were chanting against a liberal Democrat, somebody who had been a friend, so-called, of Martin Luther King Jr., not a right winger. And so people's conclusions, the consciousness was formed that it's not simply a problem of this or that politician. It's not simply a mistake. The Vietnam War was really an example, a manifestation of the problem of a system. And the system had a name, and its name was capitalism or imperialism. And people drew anti-imperialist conclusions and formed an anti-imperialist movement. So in the Iraq War in 2003 and four, we had hundreds of thousands of people out And then everyone apparently seemed to think that if only Obama could be elected, if only a Democrat could replace Bush, then the issues like the Iraq war would go away. And obviously that turned out to be not true. I think all of these combination of factors leads one to come to the conclusion, not that we've entered fully a new sort of radical revolutionary era, but we're approaching one. And you can sort of see all of the different necessary elements or characteristic features that would make that so. And again, I do also agree, and I think in addition to all of that, I want you to address the centrality of the Palestinian issue, because Palestine, in a way, is unlike any other anti-imperialist struggle. It's very similar in some ways, but it's it's got its own distinct history. I mean, if it wasn't for the resilient, steadfast struggle of Palestinian people, the Palestinian question itself would have been liquidated as other national questions have been liquidated over time. So this enduring, resilient, steadfast struggle never goes away. And it it means that Palestine does assume this centrality in the global movement. Go ahead. Yeah. So I want to actually address two separate things. I think first, what you're describing is the growing consciousness around the understanding that this is a systemic issue that we're facing, that imperialism is a global system that actually results in the implementation of these different policies, the discourse that the main mainstream media and the spokespeople of the Biden administration uses, and the further developments around the globe, that this is a system-wide issue. And I think Basically, over the last 10 years, since the Obama administration, we've seen different moments where that like Yara described, we were, we've had watershed moments. I think domestically what we've seen is the, the black struggle specifically around policing, around mass imprisonment, the George Floyd uprisings, before that, the, the Ferguson uprisings, Trayvon Martin. These various issues also sharpen the contradictions between the Democratic-led government and the masses in the streets, right? And so people up until this moment were primed. And even during this period of time, since 2014, the Palestinian struggle and the support for Palestine in the U.S. sort of intersected with this domestic struggle around policing, around mass incarceration. Why? Because of a variety of different reasons. First, the counterinsurgency strategies and tactics and tools used in Palestine being 
brought here, either brought here or exported from here to Palestine, whether it's the use of tear gas and various things. And you see repeatedly mentioned online about the notion of tear gas use during the Ferguson moment, Palestinians advising people in the streets on how to combat the the effects of tear gas. So we're talking about a foundation building process that's happened over the last few years where Palestine has factored significantly in the developments and the understanding of the role of the system in uh, maintaining these policies. Another thing I want to mention is, and it's it's a growing movement and understanding on the relationship between the private and the public sector, between the tech industry and the Department of Defense, right? And I, I wanted to just take a moment to highlight this before I talk about why I think Palestine is so central beyond the domestic scene, is what we have is, let's take, for example, Anthony Blinken, okay, who is the Secretary of State, who's, in, in my opinion, the one orchestrating this war and not Biden. Uh, He's the one who's touring the region. He's the one who's trying to draw concessions. He's the one who's most probably interfacing with the Israeli administration. He served on various democratic administrations from Clinton to Obama in various capacities as a State Department official. He also founded in his moment where he wasn't in office during the Trump administration, a consulting firm called West Exec. And he founded this along with a number of different former Obama officials, including Michelle Flournoy, uh, who was the Undersecretary of Defense of Policy. And the whole entire goal of this consulting firm, right, that is supposed to be a revolving door for State Department officials moving into the private sector, is to essentially draw a direct bridge between the tech industry in Silicon Valley and the private sector more broadly and the goals of U.S. imperialism globally, right? the quote-unquote Department of Defense. And so the idea here, and just to to understand the people that they actually enlisted to do this work, includes senior, former retired senior officials, such as the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Daniel Shapiro, also the former CIA deputy director, David Cohen. All of these people went directly into this private industry. And one of the main projects that they actually sought to implement was something called Google Jigsaw. And what we saw is actually Google employees themselves revolt against this project because it was supposed to be the idea is how does Google further enter the business of war by supporting drone capacity, right? And there was over 700 academics signed a letter demanding that Google terminate its contract with the Department of Defense. There were a number of different employees that resigned. And so what we're seeing is then an increase of also consciousness within the labor sector, right? Within actual workers around the role of their own industries in the propagation of war globally. And Even Jared Cohen, the founder of Jigsaw, in 2012, for example, he emailed then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to pitch a Jigsaw project in Syria specifically aimed at supporting the uprisings in Syria against the Syrian government. And what we understand, obviously, now after the fact that this was a U.S.-backed war on Syria that included the, the reactionary regimes in the regions, among them Qatar, Saudi, the United Arab Emirates. And I just want to quote Jared Cohen. He says, our logic in pitching this to Hillary Clinton was, our logic behind that is that while many people are tracking the atrocities, nobody is visually representing and mapping the defections, which we believe are important to encouraging more to defect and give confidence to the opposition. So what we have here is these 
basically former officials entering the private sector and thinking about the best way for them to actually leverage private sector work, Silicon Valley, in support of the war efforts, the imperialist efforts across the globe. And this West's exec, which was founded by Blinken, has contracts and relationships with Blackstone, which was targeted by the Answer Coalition and shut it down in New York City, Bank of America, Facebook, McKinsey and Company. McKinsey, which produced Pete Buttigieg, the Department of Transportation. He was a consultant with them. Pharmaceutical companies, AT&T, the Royal Bank of Canada, all of these different industries bowing on how they best can support imperialism globally. So this this is the sort of stuff that we need to build on, the links between these various industries and global imperialism. And then the, the agitation point becomes the employees of these industries, right? First of all, they're subject to, obviously, inflation that's not matching their wage increase, increasingly uh, surveilled workplaces, right? We see this in Amazon and various other industries. And so it's sort of the intersection of labor, of imperialism, of tech industry and of these issues. Now, to the last point, and I'll try to be brief here about the centrality of the Palestinian struggle and how it factors into this moment. I think Palestine is a struggle that is uncooptable by U.S. empire. And the reason big is because of what Yara specifically stated is that it's in direct confrontation with U.S. imperialism. Israel, more than ever, in my opinion, is extremely important for the U.S.'s ability to maintain uh, empire and hegemony globally, especially with the need for them to redirect their energies against Russia and China. They need someone else to play the, the major role in the region that Israel plays for them. And so Palestinians, Palestinians, the resistance in Palestine is in direct confrontation with that and has been so for the last 75 years, whether it's the U.S., the British, the West more broadly. And with a situation where you have sharpen contradictions. There's no walking away from occupation. You can't kind of turn off your TV as a Palestinian to the reality of exile, of siege, of imprisonment. You're a rebellious, revolutionary population. The objective conditions exist for it. And so naturally, the ceiling, the political ceiling for Palestinians is always going to be higher than anywhere else because the contradictions are much higher. So you don't have to convince a Palestinian to go out into the street and confront these repressive apparatus. You don't need to tell a Palestinian youth or child to pick up a stone and throw it against a tank or an Israeli raid. These things are intuitive. The question is how do you raise or how do you make the political understanding more sophisticated in terms of the role of Palestine in imperialism? That's the role of people like us, the PYM, like this program, to really draw the connections with what I described around Blinken and the tech industry and understanding the counterinsurgency strategies, the role of resources, the role of climate change and its ties to war, the role of basically the deprivation of the American public or the Western public more broadly of their rights, of their access to health care, to education, and its connection to imperialist strategies globally. And their links to, like you said, global capitalism at the end of the day. These, these companies aren't motivated by hate for Palestinians. They're motivated by how they can line the pockets of their stockholders and their CEOs. And that happens to be at the expense of Palestinians in the broader American public and the broader global South. Yeah, very fascinating, very, very important. Yara, in the 1968, 69, 69 and 1970, there was something called the Nixon Doctrine. 
every president, you know, has to have their own doctrine. So in some ways it's kind of meaningless, but the Nixon doctrine was actually a thing. And the doctrine was the Middle East is rising up. The Middle East is having revolutionary movements of all types. And the U.S. is, as I said earlier in the show, bogged down basically in Southeast Asia in a losing war against the Vietnamese people. So the U.S. needed proxy forces to manage the Middle East. So the Nixon doctrine was, A, using Israel, and B, using Iran under the tutelage or the leadership of the Shah, who had been put on the throne by a CIA coup in 1953. So Iran and Israel were the partners for U.S. imperialism to manage that region in the 60s. But then there was a revolution in Iran, and Iran, in a way, turned into its opposite, not fully politically, but in a geostrategic sense. The ties with U.S. imperialism were severed. The U.S. broke relations. The U.S. could not use Iran as it had used it under the Shah. So the U.S. was left basically with Israel as a reliable partner. There were other reactionary regimes, of course, and we don't want to discount the importance of that. But my point is that you could have a revolution in these other countries. Like if there was a revolution in Iran, you could conceivably have a revolution in, say, Saudi Arabia. There won't be a revolution in Israel, in other words, internally, domestically, from the Israeli population because it's a small settler regime dependent on U.S. imperialism. So in that sense, it's stable. It's more stable as a projection of U.S. power its instability comes from the rising tide of revolution or challenge outside of the Israeli population. Then you have, you know, the five eyes. You have the UK, Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, the Anglophone imperialist countries. The five eyes are like the center of US covert operations, but there's actually a sixth eye because Israel has been partly integrated or maybe even fully integrated into that covert system. So going back to Mohammed's point that U.S. imperialism in a way can't break from Israel, and at the same time, the big broadening struggle inside of the region of the Middle East, but now globally, makes the U.S. imperialism kind of stuck. I want to just talk about that. I mean, we're getting sort of towards the finish line, but I want to start to think about projections here. Like, where does this go? Obviously, there's a temporary pause in the fighting. We hope, we all hope that it's a, a more enduring ceasefire, but the struggle is not going to end no matter what. And when you, when you look at the big picture and the trajectory, you can see that imperialism is sort of in a corner here. Yes, the U.S. and Israel can kill so many children, so many kids and their moms and their grandparents. Yes, they can do that but they can't actually succeed in liquidating the Palestinian struggle, which of course was the point of normalizing the relations with the other Arab regimes. That's, that's in the dust right now. I mean, when you, when you think about the trajectory, I want you to just, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but just project. I mean, I think there's a couple of things that are really critical here to also just emphasize before we try to make some predictions. I think on the one hand, the piece around proxies that you mentioned, Brian, is really important. You know, what we saw inside the Middle East has been repeatedly, or we've been seeing repeatedly, is an attempt by the United States and its allies to create 
regimes that are going to work in service of imperialism in the region. And I think what's really important here is kind of thinking about the role of these states. Of course, we know UAE, which normalized ties with Israel, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, in many ways has been, you know, we've seen over the last month, major repression against Palestinian protesters there. But also, I think what's interesting to tie this also to Mohammed's point about the Palestinian struggle not being co-optable is that we saw an attempt by the United States to co-opt the Palestinian struggle in 1993 with the Oslo Accords. And it, it, you know, arguably, while it succeeded in setting up a Palestinian authority in the West Bank, which effectively serves as, in many ways, a proxy or a comprador, whatever you'd like to call it, engaged in security coordination with Israel, repressing the Palestinian revolution, you know, to Mohammed's point, it failed in the sense that the Palestinian revolution persevered and rejected the path of Oslo and refused to accept that Palestine would agree to some kind of piecemeal agreement of land, refused to say we are going to stop engaging in armed revolution and refused to really capitulate to U.S. imperialism's attempt to create some kind of security apparatus inside Palestine that would also work to sever and destroy the Palestinian revolution. And so really what we know for certain then is that the Palestinian revolution is going to continue to carry forward, that there will be no cessation of the Palestinian struggle, that Palestinians are committed as they have been for over 75 years, dating you know back to the 1920s when Palestinians were engaged in armed struggle against the British at the time and Zionist settlers. And, you know, this is a struggle that is very clearly not going to turn around and capitulate. And we know that because the attempt in 1993 failed and the Palestinians carried forward with their struggle. So I think really what's left here is to think about, okay, well, if we know the Palestinians are not going to to stop their struggle, we know that this is a nation of people who is committed to liberation, who is committed to anti-imperialism, who is committed to anti-colonialism, where does that leave the rest of the world? And I think something that we also know when it comes to the United States is that the United States will choose supporting fascism in the global South every single time. And so, Brian, you mentioned, for example, that the Israeli population is a more stable population in the sense that you know, in the United States calculation, it's not going to overnight become some sort of revolutionary agent. And I completely agree with this. I think in the case of the Israeli population, what we're seeing is a consistent move towards more overt and overt and violent forms of fascism. And, you know, we know that in the case of Israel, I mean, in the last couple of weeks, I think what we saw was something like 3% of the Israeli population supported a ceasefire, you know, an unconditional ceasefire. And so we're seeing really a militarized society inside Israel that is enlisting to join the army, uh, forced conscription, but very small percentage of the Israeli population refuses to join the army. We're seeing a society that is chanting death to Arabs, marching through the streets, chanting death to Arabs, terrorizing the Palestinians who live inside 1948 lands, so Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship, that is emboldened by continued colonization in the West Bank. So we saw in 2021, in the case of Sheikh Jarrah, you know, Israeli settlers, Zionist settlers, emboldened and entering the West Bank and really kind of hungry to colonize the West Bank. And in the case of Gaza, you know, 
Israel has repeatedly attacked Gaza, engaged in brutal assaults against the Gaza Strip. And I believe it was in 2014 where the residents of one of the Israeli settlements around the Gaza buffer zones, Derdot, where we saw the residents of the settlement take out picnic chairs and sit themselves up on a rooftop and eat popcorn to watch the bombs rain down on Gaza. So what we're seeing here is a population that is moving each year and with each moment more towards a brute and overt sort of fascism. And we know what is for certain is that the United States war machine and the United States capitalist government will always choose fascism in the global South rather than aligning itself with any kind of revolutionary forces. And so really, I think what is left, the one thing that is left for us to predict is what will the American masses choose? What will the masses of the Western world choose? And how will will the masses be able to organize, whether that be in places like Jordan and parts of the global south where mass organizing is being repressed, or in the United States and Canada and Britain, where we're also seeing mass repression of revolutionary organizing, will the masses be able to out-organize And what kind of path will they be able to assert and lay down for this revolutionary moment? And I think that that really is the piece that is going to be the most, you know, that's the contested territory. That's the contested site, I think, because we know the Palestinians will continue to struggle. We know that the United States capitalist leadership is going to continue to back Zionist Israeli fascism. And we know that the Israeli society will continue to move in the direction of Israeli fascism. And so the question is, what about the masses, the revolutionary masses in the United States and in the global South? And I think that this is really a moment where we're going to see the ability, I think, and the importance of these masses to continue to build. You know, this four-day pause is not an excuse for us to stop building. It's not an excuse for us to stop shutting down industries, to stop confronting Zionism and U.S. imperialism in the places that we reside. It is actually more critical now than ever that we do not allow for this momentum to die. Well said, well said. Mohammed. we're basically at the finish line. I'm going to give you the last word, but I want to just frame it this way and pick up on what Yara is saying, that in a way it's what happens in the future is determined by what we, we in the, in the big sense, we, the progressive movement, the working class movement, the anti-racist movement, In the case for our program, it's the socialist program. We're a socialist movement. What can we do? What will we do? Will we be able to help forge a kind of radical revolutionary movement for transformation here in the center of imperialism and in the other centers of imperialism? Joining with the people who are already at the barricade, so to speak, in Palestine and throughout the global south. And with that said, and going back to your point, the point that you made earlier, we're going through a generational shift and it reveals itself in all kinds of ways. And of course, young people are the people who make change. They're the young people who have the energy, the leadership, the intelligence. And when one looks at history, you know, movements for social change are basically led by young people. We have a shift inside the orientation of many, many young Jewish Americans. Many young Jewish Americans have don't want to be identified with fascism, don't want to be identified with extreme racism and apartheid, have broken free from the idea that they cannot criticize Israel or even criticize the notion of Zionism 
And we can see this in the streets. Large numbers of Palestinian people, large numbers of young Jewish American people, large numbers of people who are neither Arab American or Jewish American also in the streets together. It's one of those sort of generational moments. And I think it's important for people when we're thinking about when and how do people join progressive movements, people who aren't yet in the movements, it's partly based on their consciousness, but their consciousness grows after, in some ways, after they're already in the movement. You're in struggle. Then you're looking for new ways to explain your own situation. Why am I at these demonstrations? Why am I being challenged by the police? Why am I risking expulsion from college? And you start to go through very sharp shifts in political consciousness. And the thing that makes a difference for people is whether they feel that they can make a difference. Does their activity, does their initiative, does their entrance into political life have hopefulness to it? Can it make a change? And once people think that what they do matters, they start to move. And that's the hopeful part, I would say, of what we've all witnessed in the last month in Canada, where Yara is, where in the United States, where I am. Huge shift in terms of political organizing. It is the hope. It is the place that we need to focus our attention where we can build as best we can, again, inside the belly of the beast, so to speak, inside the center of imperialism. With that, Mohammed, I'm going to give you the last word. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the role of our movements now is to take these people, the masses that have entered into the streets and, and to actually bring them into organization, into actual organized structures that are capable of sustaining a vision, a strategy, the implementation of tactics, and to build on prior experience. And this is something that's true of every context, not just the American or Canadian or Western context. This is true of Palestine. And that's why we see, for example, the imprisonment of leadership, of cadre, as one of the most important tactics utilized by the Israeli regime in order to repress the Palestinian revolution. And I think we must understand that we can't be activists. We can't simply be people who post on social media. We must enter into movement and to implement tactics and build on those experiences to understand what works and what doesn't. And the only way to do that is to do it for a sustained period of time with comrades, with people in different contexts from workplaces to campuses to understand what is truly effective. Where is the genuine pulse of pressure that can be pressed in order to actually move our situation, to go beyond our context and our conditions. And so for me and the PYM specifically, we understand the importance of organizing under a banner, under coalitions, under an organization or movement. PYM's goal is always to take Palestinian youth, Palestinian and Arab youth who have experiences on their campuses or and sometimes have no experiences whatsoever in terms of organizing, to bring them in, to give them the practical skills that they're able to then use to change their context, to understand their community's needs and aspirations, to understand the struggles of the people around them, the communities and movements for indigenous sovereignty in this country, for land back, for black struggle against racial injustice, for the struggle of Latinos, of various other sectors within our, our society, the working class struggle, the labor struggle, to seeing those things as integral and interconnected in a way that's actually 
developing shared action and shared vision. And it's only through that that we all have a chance. You have to actually fight to win. The only thing guaranteed if you don't fight is that you are going to lose. And the only thing guaranteed if you try is that you can win. And so that's how we see it. That's what I believe the, the call to the people who are listening to this program or watching this program is if you're not in, involved in organizations, whether they're solidarity formations for Palestine, whether they're community institutions, whether they're parties or coalition, is to join, right? And if it doesn't work out for you, if it doesn't actually yield results that you want, or if it doesn't fit your actual needs or interests or aspirations, then join another one. Ultimately, you won't know what works for you or what actually can change the world around you unless you're actually enlisted in this work. And that requires you to have to develop experience over years, over decades. You know, people like me, Yara, people like you, Brian, we've been at it for for years. And, you know, we recently put out a post, the PYM, and, and we actually drew on a quote by Vladimir Lenin. Uh, the revolutionary and one of the most successful revolutionaries in my estimation, where he stated there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. And you have to understand that unless there's the infrastructure and the organization capable of actually capitalizing on a moment, then you're not able to create those decades and weeks if you haven't built the experience to do so. And so with that, I'll leave your, your viewers with a call to action to join the activities on November 24th, the Shut It Down Coalition, of which Answer, the PSL, PYM, and various other formations are a part of the People's Forum. We're organizing days of action every week. And the most, the one coming up on the 24th is to target commercial centers on Black Friday, a day where the capitalist system asks the populations of this country to consume even more with money they don't have in order to incur debt that keeps them beneath the foot of the capitalist class in this country. And so join those actions, mobilize on your own and make, if there are actions in your area, then you organize them. And only through that, only through a path of actual organized action and increased consciousness, do we, we stand a chance against this beast. Indeed. So that's Friday, November 24th, day after so-called Thanksgiving. It's the biggest shopping day of the year. People should go to stores, retail outlets, raise this struggle of the Palestinian people, make it clear no business as usual, as long as the U.S. is funding, financing, and arming the instrument and tools of genocide against the people of Palestine. I want to thank both of you, Yara and Mohammed, for joining the Socialist Program. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.